Ephesians 3:14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, this isn't Hebrews 10 or 11. Uh, This happens sometimes as a pastor. I I called an audible uh, halfway through the week and uh, changed sermon passages. You might think you must have had a busy week and you wanted to recycle a sermon. It's nice of you to think that. That's not what I'm doing, though. I actually had the Hebrews passage about three-fourths of the way finished and decided to scrap it and save it for another time. Uh, This text in Ephesians is what I really felt led to talk about today. In, in some ways, Ephesians 3 has kind of become like the charter text for our church. I think this is like the fourth or fifth time I've preached on these verses. Uh, this is a fresh reflection on, on these verses. And, and so let me just tell you real quick why, why I decided to do this. This week, um, I really sensed the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit to meditate on these verses in light of just what I see pastorally happening in our relationships and in in our lives right now. In fact, our elders were together on Tuesday night for our monthly shepherding meeting. And at that meeting, we spend time in prayer for you, for the congregation here at Christ Church. And in that prayer meeting, this happens to me sometimes, I just really knew that the Holy Spirit was powerfully present and these verses were just sounding off in, in my mind and in my heart. And, and the sermon really, in a sense, kind of began writing itself there in that prayer meeting. These verses are about the love of God, the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And that's what I want, to, I want us to, uh, to ponder and celebrate together this morning. Of course, we all need to hear about God's love all the time, but there's, you know, there's three um, groups of you. There's three groups of you right now that I've really felt drawn to minister to and speak to through these verses. And this, this grouping, I don't think exhausts everyone in our church, but there's three groups that are, are sort of on our pastoral radar right now. Um, the first group is, you know, some of you, I, I think, are experiencing renewal and personal revival in your lives. And that's a really good thing. You're wanting to go deeper in Christ. You're, you're feeling the freedom of repentance. God is alive and active in your heart. And then there's a second group of you that are experiencing suffering, deep suffering, deep hurts, deep pain. For some of you, that's physical. For some of you, it's more emotional. For some of you, it's about mental health. For some of you, it's about uh, this, the reality of critical relationships in your life that aren't going well. And then there's a third group. Um, others of you, I think, are at best numb. You're numb uh, to the reality of God in the world and, and to the work of the Spirit around you. And at worst, I think some of us are just stone cold dead to the work of God around us. 
Your hearts are hard, either through negligence or through sin that's not being repented of. And, and so I, as I think about and, and pray about and, and as we as elders seek to lead uh, this church and, and these groups, you know, I, I think, what can I say to people that I just have a sense are experiencing all these different things? I'm, I'm kind of like, a, we at Christ, we've got like one pitch, guys. We don't have a changeup, no curveball. We have a fastball. Maybe it's a, not a super fastball, but it's a fastball. And, uh, and it's just to talk to you about how much God loves you. That's what I want you to know. Jesus tells this story about the parable of the sower in which there's all these different types of soils. Some of the soil is rocky. Some of the soil, the seed gets eaten by birds. And some of the soil is fruitful. But the job of the sower is just to scatter the seed and let the Lord do what he will in giving the growth. And so what we want to do together this morning is I want to scatter seed about God's love for you, every single one of you, in and through Jesus Christ. And um, I know for a fact that if you fit into any of these three categories that I mentioned, um, or just two of those categories maybe you fit into, maybe you fit into none of those categories, you need strength to comprehend the love of God in Christ. So just setting the stage here a little bit in Ephesians. These verses that Jennifer read for us, they're a prayer from the Apostle Paul for these Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus that he was writing to. And if you look at verse 14, he starts by saying, for this reason. For what reason? Well, for what he said in chapter 2, where he's talked about what God has done for the Ephesians in saving them from death and in bringing them into a new humanity. Because of what, is, what God has done in this world through Jesus, Paul gives this prayer. And as you heard it read, you might have noticed that Paul's praying here that these Christians would continue to grasp, to understand the goodness and the love of God. Uh, but that's hard, which is why again and again he asked for God to give them power. He asked for God to give them strength. And so Paul prays for them. And I want to just give you two reflections on these verses as we kind of find ourselves in a, a pastoral moment where I wanted to just take a break from Hebrews and reflect on these verses. So two things, okay? First, the personal love of God in Christ. And then second, the vast love of God in Christ. Okay, first, the personal love of God. Look at these verses, okay? Paul prays, verse 16, that God may grant you Christians to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he says, here's the purpose for that strength. Verse 17, so that Christ, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, think about that verse with me. Paul does not say, he doesn't pray here, Holy Spirit, give these Christians strength so that the knowledge of Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. He doesn't pray, give these Christians strength so that the grace of Christ may dwell in your hearts or so that the love of Christ may dwell in your hearts or that the obedience of, no, that Christ, the person, Jesus Christ, would dwell in your hearts by faith. Paul is asking that God would give Christians the strength to understand the personal love of God for them in Jesus. These are profound words. Let me try and help us see that. The man, Paul's saying, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, personally indwells our hearts if we trust him in faith. 
Again, the man, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God and entered into Mary's virgin womb and was born into this world, that man, the man, Jesus Christ, who had friends and family, who was a 5-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 22-year-old and a 32- or 33-year-old when he died, the man, Jesus, who you can read about, who made these radically exclusive claims about his own godness and who was killed on a Roman cross to atone for our sin and who rose physically out of Joseph's tomb, the man, Jesus Christ, who at this very moment as I speak and as we listen is in heaven with God the Father in his resurrection body. That Jesus, the personal Jesus, dwells in your hearts if you've connected to God in faith. So how does that work? How can Jesus be in heaven and dwell in our hearts? Well, he dwells in our hearts through the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The work of Christ and the work of the Spirit, they're so closely connected that in other places in the Bible, the Apostle Paul can say things like he says in 1 Corinthians 15, the second Adam, which is a reference to Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Or as he puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, listen to what Paul writes there. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. Listen, who is the Spirit? The love of God is is demonstrated uh, in that he gives us Jesus and then Jesus gives us his Spirit. And their work is so closely connected that Jesus can actually, or Paul can actually refer to Jesus in the Spirit as, as doing the same things. Here's what I want you to hear. The love of God is seen not just in that we receive blessings from what Jesus did. We receive Jesus. We receive Jesus himself. Things like the forgiveness of sins and adoption into God's family and, and new identity as his beloved are all amazing gospel truths that we want to celebrate and rejoice in. But the love of God goes even further than that. We receive the man, Jesus himself, who was murdered for our sin and raised to life and right now is at the right hand of God and will one day return. The person of Jesus is ours and we are his and God's love is most evident to us in that. Our God is a God who gives us himself. Everything else is just icing. So why do I belabor this point? Here's why. It's because I think we often fail to grasp the personal, the personal nature of God's love for us. Because we haven't had direct, personal experience of God in Jesus Christ. And there's no substitute for that, friends. There's no substitute for a genuinely personal encounter with Jesus. The the spiritual director, David Benner, distinguishes between what he calls knowledge by description and knowledge by acquaintance. And he says that knowledge by acquaintance is always better than knowledge by description. How many of you have ever tried to tell someone a story about an experience that you've had in your life? And uh, the experience might have been funny or sad or awkward, right? And as you're relaying what happened to you to someone else who wasn't there, you kind of get to the punchline. This happens to me all the time. (laughs) You get to the punchline and it's just like crickets when they're supposed to laugh 
or they look at you weirdly when they're supposed to cry and you say, what do you say? You had to be there, right? You had to be there because knowledge by acquaintance, knowledge by experience is always better than simply knowing something by description. What we need to hear is that knowing God and his love is not simply a matter of believing things about him. It's a matter of experiencing him personally through the indwelling Christ. There's this great old um, interview. It's about 15 years old, I think, between Bono, the lead singer of U2, and uh, this guy named Gabe Byrne, who was this Irish newscaster who had this kind of Larry King-like interview show for decades in Ireland. And you can YouTube the video. Again, you had to be there probably to watch it, but I'm going to do the best I can to explain why I think it was helpful. uh, Gabe Byrne begins to, to ask Bono about his religious experience, and Bono claims that he's a follower of Jesus. And so Gabe Byrne asks Bono, what do you think about Jesus? And Bono claims, yeah, I believe in the person Jesus. And Gabe Byrne sort of, you can see he's sort of incredulous as Bono's talking to him. And he starts kind of looking at Bono like he's foolish almost. And, and so he begins asking him more questions. He asks Bono, do you pray? Who or what do you pray to? He asks him. And Bono replies, I pray to Jesus. And then Byrne asks, who or what was Jesus? And Bono explains this, and then Byrne asks, Therefore, it follows that you believe Jesus was divine and that he rose physically from the dead. And Bono says, Yes, I do believe that. And, and that Jesus, he asks, made promises to you, which are going to come true. And Bono says, Yes. And, and Byrne's mouth just sort of drops open, and he doesn't even know what to say. And the reason is because Bono is speaking about Jesus as if Jesus is this real human who's still alive, who loves him and listens to him and cares for him. It's a great example of how Bono, in this experience, claims to know Jesus, the person. Maybe that's not been your experience in your life in the church. In your life, trying to understand what you believe. Maybe for you, the love of God is a collection of ideas. A collection of propositional truths that you either adhere to or that you can reject. Maybe for you, the love of God is mainly experienced in that you want to know the things God does for you. Now, that's not bad. You want to know that God takes care of you, that God forgives you, that God answers you, but so much of that is, friends, it's, it's knowledge by description. All of those things are true, but all of those things come from Jesus, the man, the person himself, indwelling your heart by faith. You see, the love of God is that he has given you himself. Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan, wrote this, not only does God bless with all other good things, but above all, by communicating himself and his own blessedness to us. So a question, does Jesus indwell your heart by faith? Do you know Jesus himself? Not things about him, not benefits he's given you, but Jesus. That is Christianity. It's the only way to experience and not just intellectually acknowledge God's love. It's personal. Second, The vast love of God. The vast love of God in Christ. Paul goes on to write, verse 17, that if by faith Christ indwells our hearts, 
then we are rooted and grounded in love. And when we're rooted and grounded in love, it in turn gives us strength to more and more comprehend God's love. It's, it's like we fall into this never-ending cycle of divine love when we come to know Jesus. Jesus roots and grounds us in his love, and the goal of that rooting is to more and more know, know and, and enjoy his love. So God and God's love is, it's all in all. In fact, Paul writes that the goal, verse 19, is to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You probably see the oxymoronic nature of that statement. How can you know something that is unknowable? To know something which surpasses knowledge, which can never be fully known. But that's what the gospel is, is that we are more and more ever being filled with the inexhaustible fullness of God as we relate to and love Jesus Christ and bask in his love for us. That is the Christian experience. That's what it means to know God's love. And Paul goes on and in attempting to to communicate the reality of the love of God for us in Jesus, he uses these four directional words. That's where I want us to camp out. It's like he's stretching the limits of language to try to communicate to you how much God loves you. He says God's love is long, and God's love is broad, and God's love is high, and God's love is is deep. Think about that with me. He tells us about the breadth of God's love. The idea of God's broad love means that his love extends to everyone and anyone. God doesn't have a type. The very end of the Bible proves this element of God's love. If you go to Revelation chapter 5, all of the angels in heaven are worshiping and praising Jesus. And they say to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Listen, from every tribe and language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The beauty of the breadth of God's love is that no type of person is ever too far gone to receive it. Listen, whatever you have done, wherever you have been, whatever experiences Loom over your story. You are not outside the broad love of Jesus Christ. I love a story Luke tells in his gospel about Jesus being invited to Simon's house. Simon was a religious leader of of his day, a, a Pharisee. And Jesus shows up for dinner at Simon's house. And there's this woman of the street, likely a prostitute, who's sort of crouching around Uh, the wall outside of the circle. And then she's so drawn to Jesus and captivated by Jesus that she begins to wash Jesus's feet with this very expensive jar of alabaster perfume and her, her hair. She's, she's really loving Jesus in the only way she's ever known in a sensual way, frankly, in a bit of a, a, a scandalous way. And and Luke tells us that this woman does this because she knows just who she is and she knows just who he is. But more than anyone else in the room that night, this this woman and all of her hard-heartedness and all of her past terrible experiences and all of her own sin and rebellion and all of the victimization and abuse she's likely experienced understands the broad love of Christ. Jesus receives sinners who know they're sinners 
That's how powerful the blood of his death is. His sacrifice makes the foulest clean. His blood can atone for all of our sins. You can't possibly be outside the scope of Jesus' saving grace. His love is that broad. His love's also long. The length. There's so much we could say here. I think one idea that Paul wants to communicate about the length of God's love is it's fixed and unchanging in its character. The love of God is like this direct, unbroken line that extends from eternity past to eternity future. It's endless. Before any of you were ever born, God set his affection on you. In his decree, as Paul says in Ephesians, to choose us in love from before the foundation of the world to be his children. And that love continues throughout every single day of our lives and on into the new world that God will one day bring. The love of God is a constant. It is not a variable. And because it is constant, we can't get away from it and we can't escape it. I think particularly of those of you who are numb. To those of you who are hardened to the love of God. To those of you who are wandering or straying or running away, God's love in Jesus is so long that you cannot run so far that you're ever out of his grasp, that you're ever beyond his reach. Think about the long line of God's love in Jesus. Another story Jesus tells in Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal sons, the younger brother tells his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And he runs off and wastes everything his dad has given him and his inheritance in in the far country. He wakes up one morning, hungover, full of self-loathing, looking into the pig trough longingly. And he finally decides to go home. The line of Jesus' love extends to him, especially to him. And as he's preparing his remarks for what he's going to say to his father so that hopefully his dad will let him be a servant in his house, the dad pulls up his robe and takes off running, embraces him, and throws him a party. That's how long the love of God is. Those of you who are looking for love in all the wrong places, those of you who are eager for joy and satisfaction and a full life, but who are finding that this world cannot give any of those things, it can't deliver on what it promises, who are finding what Augustine said is true, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O God. The long love of Jesus wants to draw you back home to the Father. Will you come home? His love is long. His love's also high. The height of God's love. That's how Paul expresses God's final and ultimate purpose for us. It's the height to which God proposes to raise us. Salvation isn't just forgiveness. Great as forgiveness is, the height of the love of Christ is that he died not just to forgive us, but to make us like him. He died not just that we might no longer be punished, but that we might be his brothers and his sisters and the father's children. That's why Jesus so often says, I've prepared a place for you. In my room, there are many, in my mansion, there there are many rooms for you. That's why Paul says earlier in Ephesians, you have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. 
That's why Jesus promises he will take us home one day with new bodies according to the mighty working of his power. Jesus isn't going to be satisfied until your body is as glorified as his body at this very moment. In John 17, he prays that he wants us to be there with him in his glory. In 1 John, John writes that we would see him as he is in that day when everything is made new. We know what that's like, I think, on a small degree. When we love people, when we love people, we want them to have enjoyment. We want them to have privilege. And that's what Christ's love is like for us. He wants us to be a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, holy and pure. That's his ambition for us. And he's not going to rest until that has been accomplished. That's how high his love goes. It goes further up and further in. You know, that's how C.S. Lewis ends his magisterial Chronicles of Narnia. At the very end of the last battle, as the people of Narnia are being introduced to God's new Narnia, the new world, they go further up and further in, ever experiencing more and more of the glory, more and more of the joy, more and more of the height of Aslan's love. And Lewis closes the Chronicles of Narnia by, by writing this. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life. All their life, this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. God's love is high. Last, Jesus' love is deep. It's so deep that he's always there with you when you're in the depths That's how the Bible talks about the depths. Psalm 130, verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O God. Psalm 69, verse 1 through 3, save me, O God. The waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into the depths. The flood sweeps over me. The love of Jesus goes with us into the depths. And we know that because Jesus himself did not hold on to what was rightfully his. He didn't stay in the heights. He descended into the depths, even into death itself, to rescue us out of our sin and out of our bondage and out of our own deaths. The love of Christ in the love of God in Christ, it it goes so deep that it's, it's unconquerable and unchangeable and unassailable. I love Madeline Langle's quote. She writes, I will have nothing to do with a God who cares only occasionally. I need a God who is with us always, everywhere, in the deepest depths, as well as the highest heights. It is when things go wrong, when good things do not happen, when our prayers seem to have been lost, that God is most present. We do not need the sheltering wings when things go smoothly. We're closest to God in the darkness, stumbling along blindly. 
Some of you are in the depths. You're in the depths of hurt. You're in the depths of death. You're in the depths of sadness. You're in the depths of fear. You're asking, what is going to help me? How am I going to climb out? Listen, friend, you might never climb out, at least in this life. But Jesus is with you in the depths. That's how deep his love goes. Jesus climbs in with you, and he himself will carry you out. You can't ever be too deep into misery or grief or pain or sin that God cannot reach you in Jesus. His love is deep. Whatever group you're in, or maybe you're in none of them, I want you to believe. I want you to understand that God is not a figment of your imagination, and he's not an idea that I talk to you about every Sunday. There's a real supernatural being who right now knows everything that's happening in your life and every idea you have in your mind and every feeling you have in your hearts, who right now knows you better than you'll ever know yourself, who made you and loves you and watches over every step of your story. And you have hurt him through your rebellion. You have turned away. You have been selfish just like I have been selfish. But The true God, the only God, doesn't leave you in that. He comes for you. His love is broad. His love is long. His love is high and his love is deep. May we have the strength to believe it. I read this week uh, this very old Russian fairy tale. And uh, it's about this prince named Prince Prince Urasov. And uh, Prince Urasov gets married and he goes off on a honeymoon with his bride. And they go sailing. Uh, on the Black Sea, and his bride somehow loses her wedding ring. It falls into the ocean waters. And, And at the time, the prevailing superstition was that if you lost the ring, you lost the wife. It was bad mojo for you to lose a ring. It meant things are not going to go well for your marriage. Your wife was going to be gone soon. And so this prince searches the sea, far and wide for the ring. And he continually asks himself, how can I get the ring back? And how can I lose or not lose my my beloved wife? And and, and then Prince Urasov has this idea. He goes up and down both shores of the Black Sea, buying up all the portions of land that touch the shore. And he spends millions upon millions of rubles and makes deals with thousands of landowners. And when he had finally bought the final parcel of land that even touches the surface or the the shore of the sea, he goes and he tells his wife, I own everything around the sea and the sea itself, which means I own your ring at the bottom of the sea. No cost is too great to keep you in my love. That's what God feels for you. Can we believe it together? Let's pray. 